Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Check podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. I know people get tired of me asking, but I have to. The Tortoise Check has no ads, we have no sponsors, and we want to keep going, particularly in 2024, which is going to be the year of elections. We want to cover what's happening domestically, what's happening in the European Parliament, and indeed elections across the globe. And the only way we can do that is if some of you, some of the thousands are listening, we need a handful of you to chip in and pay it forward to keep the podcast free for everyone. It is not a one-way street. You get a ton of extras, including access to our entire back catalogue of over 1,500 podcasts now in one consolidated feed, and they're entirely plea-free. So you don't have to listen to me beg, but beg I must, and beg I will continue to do until we try and make this little independent media platform that we have somewhat, somewhat viable. It is a struggle, I won't lie. We are we are finding it very difficult, and I understand people are finding it very difficult out there. The cost of living crisis has not gone away for most of the population, and I, and I get it, but if you are in a fortunate enough position or you'd go without a cup of coffee once a month just to keep us going, then throw us the price of that cup of coffee. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise The link is at the top of the podcast you're about to listen to now. Thanks for all the feedback, people who listen, who share, who like, who tell people where to find us, throwing a recommendation on the old WhatsApp. It's all brilliant, but we really need some of you to come on board. So while you're listening to the pod, click the link and give us the 90 seconds it'll take you to help keep these mics on and the show on the road. Thank you. Hello everyone and welcome to Palcast, a podcast brought to you uh, by Yusuf Jamal here in Istanbul and Helena Koban, the president of Just Well Educational, who is joining us uh, from Washington, D.C. And our great producer, uh, Tony Groves from Dublin of the Eco Chamber um, uh, podcast. Uh, it's, uh, January 16, 2024, uh, 4 p.m. in, uh, local time in, in Istanbul. And, uh, today we're joined by a very special guest, Norma Hashim, a friend and, uh, an editor of a number of books on Palestinian political prisoners, but also the, uh, founder of the Hashim Sani Center for Palestine, uh, studies who, uh, uh, co-sponsors our podcast. We will talk about uh, uh, Malaysia, and I'm very glad to have you all, Helena, Tony, and and uh, Norma. Hello, nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So thank you, oh, Norma. It's great to have you with us, Norma. Yeah. I, 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 I'm always blown away. If, if just before people finish, make sure you follow Norma on on Instagram because she just has the most amazing places she visits and the most amazing is all too much cat content for my liking. <laughs> but, 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 but do check out; it's fantastic. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you, Tony, for for the leads, and um, we will talk about Malaysia and boycott and solidarity. And there are a lot of things to talk about today because Malaysia was one of the first countries to support South Africa's ICJ case against um, uh, Israel. And Norma and I just met the grandson of Nelson Mandela in, in Istanbul a couple of days ago. Um, also, uh, over the years, I, I lived, 
for two years in in in, in Kuala Lumpur, and uh, I've seen you know the amount of solidarity pal. Uh, Malaysians have for Palestine, it's beyond, you know, uh, amazing. It has always been uh, like this. Uh, so we'll talk about, you know, this solidarity boycott. Um, also, we will mention our great mentor and friend Rifat Lareer because Norma knew him in, in person uh, for, for at least two years. And in fact, she helped him uh, launch the Malaysian version of Gaza Rights Back, uh, as uh, Helena uh, knows. Uh, Norma, it's it's very special to have you here in, in, in Istanbul. And uh, I want to start by asking you about, um, you know, the uh, foreign minister of Germany just visited Kuala Lumpur to urge Malaysia not to support the ICJ case against Israel like as a Malaysian citizen yeah how, yeah. how do you see this uh, you know like that's so insulting I think we should go to Germany and tell her to support the Palestinians I mean <laughs> what right do they have I mean I feel we're totally on the right side of history these are people who are oppressed and we as Malaysians we know what it's like to be colonized um, last week a Palestinian NGO came to see us And he was saying to me, he said, October 7th was a real wake-up call for Palestinians because it showed that Israel was not invincible. You know, so, and I thought back about our own history of Malaysia. And I remember when my children were very young, we used to go to the seaside. And this was on the east coast of Malaysia. And this was actually the exact landing place where the Japanese landed in 1941. So when this was like 20 over years ago when the children were very little and someone in the village, because it was a small village, he remembered as a young man seeing the Japanese land. So what happened was uh, at that time, uh, Malaysia had been colonized since 1511 by the Portuguese, followed by the Dutch and then by the British. So at that time, you know, um, in 1941, we were under control of the British Empire. Seeing the Japanese land in Malaya and quickly, swiftly take over Malaya, in turn, in a matter of days. And within a month or so, they had taken over Singapore, you know, the one that the British Empire was going to hold on to the last breath. And they lost it. You know, they had to capitulate. And, you know, after the war ended, you know, when the Japanese had, uh, uh, had you know, uh, given up uh, and surrendered, the British came back, of course, and... We had all changed, just like the Palestinians on October 7th. We had changed because we knew that the British Empire was not invisible. It was not the power that we, we should be afraid of or feel that we would be colonized forever. I think people had that kind of mentality, but it changed completely to see the Japanese. Not that the Japanese were, <laughs> the, the soldiers were good to us at all, but you know, it, it, it completely changed the mindset of people. And that led to the fight for uh, independence. For in fact, all of uh, the countries that have been colonized under the British Empire, India, Pakistan, Malaysia, you know, everyone started demanding for independence after that. 
So, Norma, that is sorry, so yeah. interesting. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I am the person on this podcast who is of English heritage, and I have yes. been um, really researching the history of all the West European colonialism, starting, as you said, with the Portuguese and then the Dutch, and yes. um, and the and the terrible effects these West European colonialisms had on the peoples of the global South, the global majority. So, it, for me, seeing South Africa leading this case on behalf of Palestine and seeing the solidarity from all the formerly colonized countries like Malaysia, right. seeing the, the, the actions of the Yemenis who were also co colonized by the Brits, you know, in support of, of the Palestinians of Gaza. I think you're right. It's like, it's a wake up call, not just for Palestinians about the, the potential Vincibility of of the Israeli state, but also for peoples throughout the global south. So, you, I mean, I, I loved your story about the German German foreign minister, Germany, which actually committed the first great genocide of the 20th century against the Herero people in Namibia, and then was responsible for the Holocaust against the Jews and Roma people in in Europe. The, I mean, there is a, a, a Yiddish word, chutzpah, you know, which means like outrageous, like how, how on earth can they do this? Yes, so. really, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. And Malaysia has, in fact, never recognized Israel. I never appreciated that on our passport. I mean, since I had a passport when I was a student, I, you know, so something that was always there until someone, uh, I think a Palestinian put it on a social media one day that, wow, you, did you ever see a Malaysian passport? It says they're not allowed to travel to, to Israel <laughs> or like we don't have any diplomatic relations, right? And so, so it's something that was always there, but, you know, I didn't appreciate it until I saw that, you know, someone, someone else, a Palestinian appreciated that very much and they thought it was a very big deal. So, you know, uh, but I think Malaysians have always been in solidarity with Palestine, our previous prime minister, Dr. Mahathir, was very supportive, very outspoken. At a time when it wasn't like trendy, it was considered like nobody wanted to listen and hear what he was saying. He would always speak out for what was happening in Palestine. So there was a very, uh, I think that we just grew up with that kind of thinking as Malaysians. Yeah. You know, speaking of, of boycott, and this mm. will uh, eventually take you to Tony at some point, uh, you know, Malaysia has a history of boycotting um, international brands that support Israel. But um, I was there in, in November and um, the amount of boycott was unprecedented in many different ways. And the Malaysian government decided not to allow Israeli um, ships coming. Yeah, Zim yeah. Uh, company. Uh, to, to dock from in, 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 uh, Malaysian seaports. And this was probably the, the, the only country in the world that did yeah. so. C can you tell us the background story of, of this major, um, decision? Actually, the, 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 the outrage at what was happening after October 7th, I think helped us a lot. When we heard someone gave us a tip that <laughs> Zim shipping was going to, was going to dock at Port Plank. You know, in the past, maybe it would ha not have been easy for us to tell the government, you know, not to accept that. But with the public behind us, uh, 
we, we launched the BDS movement for Malaysia. We launched a, a campaign on change.org, I think it was. And there was like within a couple of days of 25,000 people who signed it. And it became publicized. And within two days of that campaign coming out, the Prime Minister, Anwar Ibrahim, came out with a statement saying that uh, Zim shipping would not be allowed to dock. Uh, that was, um, when was that? A couple of a month back or so. And then they also said that all Israeli registered ships would not be allowed to dock at any Malaysian port, neither any ships headed for Israel. So, you know, yeah. before they get to the Red Sea, where it is stopped there. <laughs> Interesting. You know, we've had the same thing here in the United States. And that's one of the things that I really love about our our palcast conversations, that we get this feeling of, as Tony, let us say, one world, one struggle, because it really is at this point. So here in in on the West Coast, the uh, dock workers at the Port of Oakland, which is the big port in the San Francisco Bay Area, they prevented a Zim ship. I can't remember whether they prevented it from docking or from leaving. But, you know, that is a huge thing in this country, too. And so actually, these shipping lanes, I'm fascinated with them. And I'm fascinated with the effects that the Yemeni actions have already had on the global, on the Western dominated economy by virtue of, of just forcing the, the shipping companies to go around the Cape of Good Hope, where there are, there's all kinds of congestion down there in the South African ports. So it's not easy. I mean, it's a long trip. And, um, you know, these were the shipping lanes that were established to establish Western control of the world. And now the people in the global south, the global majority, are finding, oh, these shipping lanes can also like be something that we can use to affect policy. So was it Blinken or Biden here in the United States who said, well, we had to take action against the Houthis because they were affecting product delivery times, you know, for, for Western markets. And somebody on, on Twitter said, well, how about the product delivery times for medicines and food products going into Gaza? Don't you worry about those? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's a fascinating global phenomenon right now. Yes. And also our, um, you know, because we've always boycotted Israel for, for years already. I think even in 2016, uh, we, we found out that the FIFA was going to hold that international congress in Kuala Lumpur. And so we also uh, raised that issue because we knew that Israel was going to come. You know, they would be, have been a part of it. It is by the which, FIFA which body was that, Norma? FIFA. The FIFA, oh, okay. the, Fed, yeah. uh, the football one. Right. But, you know, <laughs> we always had this campaign, right? I'm sure even in Ireland, kick, kick Israel out of FIFA, right? We're still trying. That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. We, we, want, yeah, so. we, want them, we want them out of Eurovision as well this year. We want, yeah, I mean, yeah. like... Yes. Oh no, sorry. Continue, Norman. I I will I will come yes. in and, and talk about it a little bit. Yeah. So so when when we pointed this out to the government and they told FIFA that we can hold the congress, the World Congress actually it was in 2017, uh, but but when they told FIFA that we would not allow Israel to participate, uh, FIFA removed that from us, so we were not given the privilege of hosting the tournament, uh, the the congress or something. But you know, for us, no big loss for us. I mean, rather than you know capitulate. To, to Israeli demands. Isn't it, isn't it better well, to, to, to 
uh, lose, as you say, uh, access to to a conference, then actually lose your your yeah. your your um, dignity and your your exactly, morality, isn't it? Um, yes, yes. I, I, I just you, of course, you've mentioned boycott. We know boycott comes from Lord Charles Boycott, causing trouble in in Ireland by trying to charge rents to farmers and uh, and and the farmers running around saying watch out for boycott, basically. Um, but I'm also reminded, as I always am, of the brave um, shop uh, shop workers, the, the women in Dun stores who um, in 1984 refused to serve goods that were sold from South, apartheid South Africa and um, and how they how it was uh, uh, Desmond Tutu referred to them as the most dangerous shop workers in the world because because they brought it to a, they brought it to a halt and they, they they raised awareness and their lives were made a misery for two years but they absolutely um, were dedicated to this one ambition and it shows that level as you say what you know making that stand in Malaysia the the people there are people going into supermarkets. In in Dublin now, wanting to know where the strawberries were, were were grown, you know, wanting to know where and and this thing, these things are having an impact to the degree where McDonald's are upset that their profits are down. Starbucks are worried that that people are are not coming into their Starbucks. Pretty uh, not to be plain about it, you probably shouldn't have went into McDonald's or Starbucks before this anyway. But you know, um, yeah. but now that you're not doing it, you, you can keep on doing it and. Um, I, I'm reminded of what uh, Bernadette Devlin Michalski said only at the weekend in what was an absolute powerful speech she gave to tens of thousands of people on the street of, of, of Dublin. She said, she said, Gaza is a litmus test for the world. It's a litmus test for your, your morality and it's a litmus test for what we want to do. So that is, if, if it means giving up, um, giving up your Starbucks is the, is the lever you can pull on. Well, that's a very easy one to do, isn't it? You know, so, so yeah. people listening to this, you do have some power. The other issue I will, I will, the problem we have is obviously the sophistication of Israel's economy and it's, um, and it's tech industry and how it's, it's arm and glove, glove, hand and glove with the, with the war machine. I mean, like, there's there's no other country in the world that I know that uses Gaza uh, to test their missiles and their their tech out on, so they can then sell more weapons down the road. It's just it's just phenomenal, and we need to get wise to that because you know some of the some of the organisations that are behind that are also the organisations that you pro- that probably run some of your social media accounts. So we need to wake up to that as well. Well, we certainly had that happen, Tony. Um, you know, yesterday. January 15th was um, Read for Rifat Day internationally, um, organized by Publishers for Palestine, which is a new kind of collective organizing group in the publishing industry. So, you know, they had actually had the hashtag Read for Rifat, and we were all, you know, hoping to post our, our content onto social media. And what happens on Instagram, I looked for the hashtag, hash Read for Rifat, and they said, this hashtag has been silenced because it had questionable uh-huh. content yeah. or something outrageous. You know, so that is Instagram, which is owned by Meta, which is owned by Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, which has its head office like four kilometers down here, which is we've, we've bought, we've protested outside. We've done all of this and we know full well what, that it's, they're censoring posts. They censored. I put up that. I refer to that speech by Bernadette Devlin McCallisky. I put up a short minute from it and a lot of people can't see it. It's just a black screen on my Instagram. Instagram. Oh wow! I mean, that's great. Yeah. This is just a, this is just a basic appeal for humanity, and it's shown up as a black square. I have yeah. to say that I th- I think Twitter is a little bit better now than than uh, Meta. 
Um, who knows where Elon Musk is going to take it? But, but right now, it's, it, it seems to me that it's a better place for sharing good content. So anyways, Norma and, and Yusuf and I all participated, and, and it's great. Um, we're going to put it up onto YouTube so that people can see Yusuf and Norma and I reading little extracts from, from Rifat Larir's work. You're so amazing. You know that when I met uh, Rifat's supervisor at uh, his university when he was doing his PhD, and she got in touch with me because she wanted to do a reprint of Gaza Writes Back. And we also had done, uh, because, you know, I, I knew the publisher in Malaysia because they'd done the prisoner's diaries. So I got him in touch with, uh, with her and, uh, and then they did the Malay version in, you know, in, in Malay language. So we had launched two of Gaza Writes Back, you know, we had two book launches for that as well in, in, uh, in Malaysia. And, and she told me that Rifat was actually giving a class. Can you imagine? He was giving a class on, uh, was it October? Uh, 27 or something, yes. you know, amid the bombings, he actually gave a class, uh, from Gaza amid the bombings to her class, you know, because she, he, he was like, uh, when he was doing his PhD, he was like her research assistant and all that. And he was also giving some lectures and classes. So she said that her students were crying at the end of it, you know, it was like so, so like trust traumatic that someone was speaking and giving a class like normal on, on English literature, you know. <laughs> People can find his classes online, you know, the ones that he did at uh, Islamic University of Gaza, and he's talking about English poetry, as he says, and the po and poetry in the English language, because some of the finest poetry in the English language is not from English people. But, uh, I mean, it's just wonderful to see his teaching style, and he's really, like, encouraging yes, almost so forcing his students to participate. He's it, no, yeah. just a wonderful teacher. Yeah, Norma is one of the uh, people who knew um, Rifat closely um, in Kuala Lumpur for at least well, three, well, three, four years. Well, we kept in touch over the last 10 yeah. years, actually. <laughs> but well. like you met him in person, you helped yeah. him launch his, uh, his books and then his uh, books and you had memories with, with him. Can you share some of these memories, what you remember about Rifat and yeah, he was always quite funny. Uh, hmm. He had a funny angle. Thing. He also had <laughs> yeah. a sense of humor. Even things were serious. He could find, you know, it was not that serious, yeah. you know. Uh, I can't recall specifics. I, I remember he had a problem with a visa. He had to travel to Indonesia to get the visa renewed, you know. That, you know, and you had a certain time on your visa and then you have to leave the country and come back again. You know, He went through all that kind of problems towards the end, especially, I think, uh, end of PhD. And, uh, but it was always okay. I mean, uh, when he left, uh, he was like rushing to go back before they eat to see his family, you know, finally. He, I think when he was doing his PhD, he always complained to me that he regretted it so much. He was like, <laughs> he said, I wish I hadn't done this. Such a nightmare, you know. But when mm -hmm. he got it, of course, he was really happy. <laughs> I think maybe people are like that all the time. No, no, he's uh, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it drives people crazy. I believe looking at Yusuf, it definitely drove yes. him crazy. <laughs> you do it once in your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, just can I can I ask? There's one thing you mentioned that the um, the shipping and and the medicines. It just 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 for listeners' benefits, there is talk now finally of some medicines being allowed in on a trade basis again, and this deal that's been done in terms of you know um, uh, items that are required and and. This I just want to stress how important this is right now. This is really, really killing people. I I know of one one young man who is a, was a kidney transplant recipient 
who needs his meds because his body will reject the kidney because it's it's it, he needs to maintain maintain that he will lose his life. He's only twenty six. Yunus El El Halak. That's 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 another form of murder. I'm sorry, but it is. My friend Zach Hanaya, Yusuf, you know Zach. Um, Zach needs his blood yeah. pressure medicines. He needs his blood pressure medicines, and he, he lost his sister already because she's a diabetic and she couldn't get access to the meds that she needs, and and you know she was struggling. So these these things we talk about trade. Um, it's getting down to the part where I hate this. I hate to be coming down and saying, guys, you know, it's lovely to remember if it absolutely is, but right now. They're trading one unit of um, of 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 an insulin shot for for uh, you know for for a little bit of uh, more less of less less trouble from the Gazans. You've got to be less problematic for us in the West Bank. It's, you know we don't want to hear anything from you, and we'll give you a little bit of medicine. And that is absolutely uh, tyrannical. And uh, you know it's a slow it's a slow death as well. Sorry, go ahead, Helen. Well, it's it's a big. I think it's a big part of the uh, South African case, you know, against Israel on the charge of genocide. That it's not just the people who are being killed directly by bombs and by and by collapsed buildings. And we know there are around you know twenty three thousand of those who've been identified, and then there are the other however many thousand who are lying under the the pancaked buildings who haven't been even been able to be excavated yet but it's the slow deaths it's the and we say slow but honestly they are already happening and and they're not registered in the same way as deaths from from the conflict but they are deaths from the conflict and i mean i saw a, something on on a, a very trusted instagram feed of a doctor who was amputating the leg of his own daughter on a table yeah. without anesthetics. I mean, I don't know how Germany or the United States or all these white countries that are protecting Israel, including at the International Court of Justice, I don't know how they get up in the morning, the, the leaders of these countries, including my own country, of course, here in the United States, how they get up in the morning and look at themselves in the mirror. Honestly, can I have one go? My, my oh, friend, actually, Norma, can I say yeah, one thing just on that? Just yeah. if our government goes off to Washington on St. Patrick's Day to hand a bowl of shamrock to uh, to Joe Biden, uh, you're not fit to govern us because you're not with you're not with the people. The people do not want you to do that and do not want you to give our our national day of of celebration and and spend it with ge- genocide, Joe. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's like, uh, that reminded me like uh, two weeks ago, my friend from Gaza, but he's in Malaysia. He was telling me that his sister and brother, their, their house was bombed and their legs were crushed. So both of them had to have this like emergency kind of amputation on their legs. The brother, I think, with one leg and the sister with both legs up to the thigh. And they were there in Jabalia and they couldn't get anything else done, you know, just that uh, they quickly had to have it cut off and it wasn't even done properly. And so they f- they found a, a doctor in the neighborhood that he knew. And they had, uh, because after that rush job, they were still bleeding. And the doctor was looking for instruments. He had nothing because he was living in his house. And he finally found a furniture stapler that you use for sofas. And he used it to staple the blood vessels or something to stop the bleeding. Yes. It's like all without anesthetic, you know, all without anesthetic. Yeah. So after that, he managed to find another doctor, maybe uh, at hospital about a week later, who actually managed to do a clean cut 
And you know, having lost her legs, he's just said to me, I'm so happy my sister finally got the amputation done. <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, this sort of happiness is a relative thing. Mm. You know, I have to note, Norma, in in relation to that, that there's somebody um, who writes for Haaretz in Israel called Amos Harel. He pointed out in a recent article, not just that this is Israel's longest war, um, you know, I mean, the Israeli national security doctrine is based on the idea of speedy and decisive victory. So they, you know, the resistance fighters in Gaza have been able to hold Israel now for longer than any other resistance movement has been able to resist Israel. So Amos Harrell was pointing out that and pointing out that there is no immediate like end to this bloodshed in sight, but also that um, obviously the resistance have, have resisted very well, but the Israeli economy can't actually put up with the reservists being deployed for so long. I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about the tech industries in Israel. I mean, the Israeli economy is suffering huge blows right now because of the reservists, hundreds of thousands of reservists being tied down in Gaza. So there's a lot of different um, dimensions of this. And I think the economic dimension is one of them. Well, what's not been said, and yeah. the truth is they've moved to, they, they, it's a wartime economy now in Israel. One of my friends in Ramallah was saying that they 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 are there's a dishonesty by pretending that it's not, um, and there's a brain drain going on whereby huge man, huge brain drain. That's really important to point out. Many of the people who were in Israel weren't comfortable with what the what the government are doing. They're saying, "Well, actually, I'm going to take my talents or my skills to to um, California or to you know to, off to San Francisco, and I'm going to go there and and work for the company, this multinational company, and I might work. They may end up in an office in Dublin, you know, because they, they all they all have they all <laughs> they might end up in that Meta headquarters. <laughs> is, we're laughing, but they, like you've no idea. Like I think it's there's five companies a few kilometers from me that represent fifty percent of 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 everything that comes through through the EU in terms of social media, so we're they're all here, you know. Um, and uh, the the reality is, yeah, but it is it that brain drain will have a big impact as well. And I think that's again, we gotta you gotta think little little victories like that will actually make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to go back to to the issue of Palestinian prisoners, political prisoners. Norma has worked on three books on Palestinian political prisoners, the Prisoners' Diaries and uh, Dreaming of Freedom, which Helena reprinted in 2019, and a shared struggle stories of Palestinian and Irish hunger strikers. We always have the Irish here, uh, Tony. And uh, what, you know, shocked me is the fact that five out of 23 prisoners interviewed uh, for the prisoners' diaries were killed by Israel so far. Um, one child prisoner, Ayman Abbasi, yeah. did not live long enough to see the book published because he was also killed by Israel. And one of the Palestinian hunger strikers, I think we had uh, 24 stories from, from Palestine hunger strikers. Khadr Adnan was killed. And I mean, this is like a big number. Yeah, yes, it is. But, you know, Palestinians, 
political prisoners, they're just uh, resisting. It's like, you know, you submit or you resist. You know, it's totally valid. When I first saw the interviews, you know, uh, in 2012, I had no idea. You know, the, the world did not know about Palestinian prisoners, did they? It was something that was in the house and affected every family in, in Palestine, but we did not know about it. So when I first read the interview, someone had submitted to me from the Center for, for you know, uh, Political Studies in, uh, in Gaza. And they said, could you let the world know about us, you know? And uh, when I read it, I was like, just really taken aback, but very moved as well, because these were prisoners who were just speaking about how they missed their families, how their mothers had passed away when they were in prison for 30 years, like Nail Barguti. Uh, was another one whose daughter had died, you know, things which really would break people, you know, that kind of absence and seeing your children grow up, knowing that, you know, they were asking for their father. So I felt it was so important that uh, I, 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 I compiled the stories and I went to see uh, Dr. Mahathir, Tun Dr. Mahathir, who was that time was in retirement. Uh, and he read it. Uh, he, he thought that it was important as well because I asked him whether he could write the, you know, the forward to the book. And he said, not only that, he said, why don't you launch it here in my office? Mm-hmm. And, and that, <laughs> you know, that kind of support actually really, you know, gave the book a good start. And, and that's how Yusuf and Wright came to Malaysia <laughs> because, you know, they came for the launch of the book and Miko Pellet was there as well. So that was how that's it. you end up doing that, that's your how I got masters. That's how I got yeah. mixed up with Yusuf as well because I think it was da- <laughs> yes. Danny Morrison was, had written a, written a, a foreword to, to the book about the shared struggle and how... When you've got nothing left, you will make your body into that weapon to, to of, of res- resistance. Yes. And, you know, again, and I, I want to stress this, how um, now in West Belfast, there's a new, there's a new mural that um, now celebrates Bobby Sands, who was Rifat's favorite, favorite Irishman after me, after me, I have to tell you. <laughs> and, um, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and Kadir Anan, uh, and it's now a new mural on the wall with, with, with the two, the two gentlemen's names, dates, and sadly the dates of they passed of their, of their premature deaths and how they were killed, um, giving the, the ultimate sacrifice. But yeah, there is that. And that's why again, back to it, Helen, one world, one struggle. Yeah. yeah, I I think that Norma did a wonderful job um, publishing the accounts of the prisoners because really here in the, in this portion of the English speaking world, it was a, almost a completely like people don't think about it. Of course, there are some many Palestinian American activist organizations that work on it, um, but I th- I think with the prisoner exchanges for the for the um, Israeli captives that happened at the end of November, we suddenly got on the the mainstream media here quite a lot of accounts of these, you know, especially then I think it was the the women prisoners who were being released from Israeli prisons and the and the uh, child, you know, under eighteen prisoners. And it was really moving to see on, you know, even some of the corporate media, the reunions that they had. Of course, the Israelis in Jerusalem would not allow the the families to celebrate the returns of their loved ones at all. But they couldn't prevent it from happening in Ramallah. And you had these massive great crowds of people and then these women, many of them had been in prison and treated so badly for so long. And these, you know, just wonderful um, stories and pictures 
all over the media. It was very moving. And I think it maybe helped people understand a little bit more, you know, the nature of the resistance in the West Bank, which of course is a, is a massive, you know, is, is suffering from massive Israeli assaults right now, as well as in, in Gaza. And, and the idea that, um, Hamas and the resistance in Gaza would say, we will hold these captives, these hostages until you release our prisoners. It, it actually seems like a much more, um, rational thing. When you see the state of the prisoners coming out of the Israeli jails, most of them, many of them, I don't know, but most of them held without trial or on trumped up charges because the Israeli military can hold people for six months without even bringing them toward in front of a judge and can renew that again and again and again. I know all that's in your book. Um, but just for our listeners, you know, to, to understand that the nature of the prisoners issue is, yeah. is really important. I met, uh, Tommy McKinney yesterday, in fact, uh, in Istanbul for a conference. Tommy Kenny is uh, someone who had gone on hunger strike for 53 days, and he's in the book as well, one of the chapters in the A Shared Struggle. And he, in fact, uh, wrote the obituary for Khadi Adnan, you know, who had died on hunger strike as well. Mm, I wasn't aware of that. So that's a, I thought there was. That's, that's, that, 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 yeah. I wasn't aware of that. Um, I, again, sorry, I just want to push one little thing, one other thing that's not getting any media is the fact that China has said they will provide humanitarian aid and they want a timetable that sets out a roadmap to the two state solution. Whether you believe that that's what's going to happen or not, I don't care. Um, but it just shows, again, we talk about the, the empire in decline in the US and China asserting itself now more and more. Uh, I think that's significant and it won't get as much coverage because obviously, you know, they don't want Western media certainly won't cover too much, too much, but it's certainly, it's certainly something to take, take note of that if China is now saying they want to put their thumb on the scales and, and, and get involved, I think it's significant. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would like to conclude by asking Norma to share the uh, story of Dr. Raed Qadura, who, who she also knew in person for many years. Uh, Raed also uh, co-translated the, the prisoner's diaries and he got his PhD from Malaysia. Um, and the viral picture of his twin babies uh, who were killed. Uh, in fact, Raed sent this picture to Norma via WhatsApp. Yes. Um, yeah. Could you please, Norma, share your knowledge of, of Raed? And oh, Raed was such a kind, um, friendly person, and he, you know, never held a grudge. He was so loved by people. Uh, we brought him over to Malaysia in 2013 for the launch of the Prisoner's Diary, since he was a co-translator, and he decided to come back to do his masters and do his PhD. He got married, and then he had two children. I think when he was in Malaysia. And I think he decided to go back. So we always kept in touch. In fact, for, you know, I have started the Hashim Sani Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Malaya here. And he helped me design the logo because Wright was a very artistic person and he liked calligraphy. He would do calligraphy of my name or anything like that, right? So, you know, you can always count on him for some artistic ideas. So he helped, he in fact did the logo for us for the center. And so we kept in touch uh, always. And on October, he, I think it was October 11th or something, um, he, he sent me a picture of, uh, the twins. He said, my newborn twins, Sama and Lama, they're girls. He says, my wife, Mariam, um, 
had just given birth by cesarean section without anesthesia. And it was just, I could not believe it, you know, because I've had four cesareans and I can't imagine going through even a second without anesthesia. And she did it. The horrible, tragic thing was, you know, just a matter of days later, Yusuf told me that Wright was killed with all his children. And initially we thought his wife, Mariam, had, had died, had been killed as well because 55 people died in that bombing. You know, the bombs they drop on Gaza are so huge. Someone just told me yesterday that one of his relatives had just turned to dust, you know, they could not find it. The bombs are so big. The people disappear. So anyway, with Riot's home, you know, everyone had been sheltering there because before that he had WhatsApped me and he told me that we're now a hundred people living in this house, you know, because all the relatives had whose homes had been bombed had come to stay with his father. So, you know, everyone was there. So when they dropped a bomb, obviously, you know, 50, 55 people, my other friend sent me a whole list of names. And then the wife's name was not there. And then a couple of days later, we realized that she had survived. You know, uh, she had been thrown out of the house uh, in the bombing. But, uh, her body was burned from head to toe. I had a photo of her. She was completely wrapped up. You know, everything was wrapped up in bandages. But she had lost her entire family, the husband and the children and the twins, were newborn. So, you know, it's just so tragic. Uh, I've been trying to keep track of her. She's been trying to leave uh, Gaza to go to Egypt for, you know, they need like plastic surgery, right, for burns on the body. But at this stage, I'm not sure because she was still waiting the last time I spoke. So, you know, this is just one of these things like, I know there must be a million stories like this, you know, it's just not, it's just one of one of them. It's just one of them. Yes, but goodness, Norma, like to come through that and to have lost all your children and your your family. Yes, after the trauma, I, I giving hope, birth without anesthesia as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I no, hope you can contact. There's her. no coming back from. I'm sorry, but that's just that. Like, a, yes, there is hundreds of these stories, but it doesn't mean every one of those lives mattered. Every one of those 55 people mattered. Every one of those 55 exactly, people yes. had a life and touched everybody. I spoke to one of my friends, um, uh, uh, Mahmoud Mustaha, who's who, when he started as a journalist in Gaza, we were the first show he'd ever done on my podcast here in Dublin. And um, and he said to me when we rang him on WhatsApp on the on the laptop and he and we tried to turn on the camera. And he asked me, could he, because the camera wouldn't connect because the Wi-Fi was so crap in, um, that, that he was trying to get through. And he said to me, I just wanted to see a friendly face. And that little sentence alone broke me, you know, because you're just thinking just that little bit of human contact of, of, of someone who, who, who was a friend of mine and feels like giving up now because of he's lost so many and all of those people have lost so many so so normal i don't even know how you told that story without because without um crying because i'm i'm upset by it and i think right now there are people going through these things right now so thank you so much for sharing that and i I hope people understand listening and you are listening in your hundreds and in your thousands that you have to we all have to keep keep talking about gaza because that's we can't stop talking about gaza and keep pushing for the ceasefire Yes. Absolutely. Every uh, second counts. You know, yes. Every minute a child can be killed just because it's delayed. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, everyone. Thank you, uh, Norma, for joining us today. Thank you, uh, Helena and, and, and Tony. And I'm looking forward to uh, speaking to you uh, next week. I would like to thank the Hashim Sani Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Malaya. 
for co-sponsoring um, this podcast and I will hand it uh, over to Tony who wants to say um, a few words. I, I just want to plug the 28th of January. If you're listening and you're in Ireland, the live podcast po- podcast for Palestine is taking place. We have a brilliant lineup on the night uh, and the Senator Francis Black, who is behind the Occupied Territories Bill, will be in attendance amongst many, many other special guests. Uh, tickets are only 15 quid. They're 15 euro and for the 15 quid, all proceeds are going to Gaza. So it'll be a great night for a great cause. Uh, we will be trying to stream the entire thing live and we hope that everything willing that uh, Yusuf and Helena will, will make their first ever live podcast appearance as well. So I'm really looking forward to that, guys. Um, thank you, Norma. Thank you so much for, for this. Um, and it's, it's, thank you. It, 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 it is an absolute pre- privilege to work with these two. I, uh, I, I, don't, I don't understand how I even got involved with these guys, but uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity and we will, we'll be back um, we'll be back. Yusuf, we have more coming your way in the next few days, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. We have more plans, more guests and more conversations. 